0: Storms are already forming out in the Atlantic, but who's insuring you? A car crash claims a revered black community activist, and why won't the Pope condemn Cuba? Welcome to the South Florida Roundup. I'm your host, Tim Paget. In the next hour, we'll look at why citizen's hurricane insurance is about to get even more expensive, that is, if you can keep your citizen's policy. Will a growing insurance disaster drive people out of Florida? We'll also remember Danny Agnew, the Liberty City businessman whose Roots Collective did so much to lift up minority entrepreneurship in Miami. And we'll examine why it's so hard for the Catholic Church and Pope Francis to call out Cuba's human rights abuses. All that coming up right after the news. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Bienvenidos, bienveni, bemvindo. It's not even July, and we're already seeing menacing storms develop out in the Atlantic, like bomber jets lining up on an aircraft carrier. And that's an early reminder that if there's one hotter mess than hurricanes, it's Florida's hurricane insurance market, where homeowners on average pay triple what the rest of America pays for property coverage. The state-run Citizens Property Insurance Corporation has long been the windstorm coverage carrier of last resort for Floridians. And without it, a lot of property owners here wouldn't be able to afford hurricane insurance. But even Citizens has to obey the rules of risk economics, so its board is recommending an average 14% rate hike for homeowner policies. What's more, Citizens is set to transfer 26,000 of its more than a million policies to two private insurance companies in hopes of trying to rebuild a private property insurance market in Florida that few few carriers want any part of because of the astronomical costs here. How are you being affected by the citizens' plan and by Florida's insurance crisis? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now from Jacksonville is Mark Friedlander, Communications Director at the Insurance Information Institute. Mark, it's always great to have your expertise here.
1: Thanks so much for having me today. Appreciate it.
0: First, Mark, can you explain exactly what Citizens is doing right now, both in terms of rate hikes and especially dropping policyholders, which I think is what's causing the most angst among Florida homeowners?
1: Okay, so let me take one issue at a time. Citizens has gone before the Florida insurance regulator seeking a average statewide increase of 14.2 percent and if this was to be approved, it would be the largest increase on record for citizens. That sounds very ominous. However, if you look at the private market, citizens is still well below private right. insurance. And cost. I, and In I fact, do
0: I do want to get into that. Yeah, yeah. a little later. Right. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. So... that is their max. That's as far as they could go. Last year, they asked for a double digit increase. We're only allowed Mm 6.4%. So there's no guarantee they're going to get a allowance for this rate increase anywhere near what they have sought. And they did their own analysis of this. And if they were a private insurer, they would have been able to Ask for a fifty-eight point five percent increase. That's what they really need in terms of what we call in the insurance business actuarial soundness. Yeah. So they are not allowed to charge what are actuarially sound rates, and that's a real problem. Right.
0: Now about the uh, dropping policyholders,
1: dropping policies. So Citizens recently was approved to move twenty-six thousand policies. To the private market, this is called a takeout process. Mm-hmm. It's approved by the Florida Insurance Regulator in collaboration with private companies, and most of those companies are most of those policies rather are going to a insure tech company, fairly new startup here in Florida called Slide Insurance. Right? Why is Slide able to take on these policies? Because they have capacity and they don't have all of the negative issues facing most other companies in Florida today, right. because they don't have those debts, because they're new to the market, right. now, sli- so that's sl- a really good thing.
0: Slide is taking about 25,000 of these policies, uh, and uh, the other 1,000 will be taken by another carrier called Loggerhead Reciprocal Interinsurance Exchange. Um, th- these Exchange. These are the two companies that, as you mentioned, Citizens is handing these policies off to. What's the general assessment of, of, of these two private carriers?
1: These private carriers are healthy and they could take on more business, which is rare in Florida today. Most Florida insurers are not looking for new business. They don't have capacity. They have so many debt issues, particularly from several years of legal system abuse and claim fraud schemes. They can't afford to take on new business. But these companies can because, once again, they're fairly new. They're startups. They don't have all the past debts.
0: Now, under this arrangement, the premium cost at the private insurance carrier has to be within 20% of the citizen's premium in order for the policyholder to have to make that switch, right?
1: That is correct. That is a new state regulation. So, give you an example. Say your premium currently with citizens is $1,000. These new companies taking on business would have to be at $1,200 or less. Right. Otherwise, the Customer does not have to move to the private company. They could stay with citizens. Citizens, That's right. New regulation. Okay.
0: Now, what is, Mark, what is Citizens' main rationale for these two main actions that they're taking right now?
1: Citizens' goal is to significantly depopulate its current policyholder comp because right now they're at over 1.3 million customers. That's a very unhealthy level for a backstop insurer. Nothing like this anywhere else in the US. So they're trying to move policies back to the private market. Unfortunately, they're still heading in the wrong direction because even with 26,000 policyholders moving to private companies, Mm -hmm. they're growing at a higher pace than that. They're growing at more than 30,000 a month. So they will still see a net gain policies for the month despite right. moving 26,000 But this thousands. is not
0: the highest number of policies citizens has had on its books in, in in the I mean it's it's gotten close to 2 million in in the past before hasn't it
1: Not that high no they're right. highest on record was just shy of 1.5 million. Oh,
0: 1.5. Okay, great. One, that's
1: that's high enough. <laughs> no, yeah, but actually, right. Right. Yeah, their projection this year is to hit 1.7. So that would be an all-time okay. record.
0: And 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 if you could explain to the lay person like me, uh, why is it so risky, actually, for citizens to have more than a million policies on its books?
1: Citizens, once again, a backstop insurer, they're only supposed to take on business that, can't find coverage anywhere else okay. unfortunately with the way the florida market has been so volatile they're taking on way too much business and the risk exposure continues to grow particularly in south Florida. Mm -hmm. The problem is because they are so rate restricted, they cannot charge enough rate for the risk they are writing. So that puts them in a position if there was a major storm loss or a series of losses in a single season, particularly to South Florida, they could deplete the reserves. What happens then? Every Florida consumer is on the hook to help replenish those funds with multi-year surcharges on our property insurance bills and our auto insurance bills
0: right so i want to go back to that point you were making earlier Um, you know, before we move deeper into this conversation, I think it's good to point out, as you were earlier, that how much more Floridians would be paying for windstorm and property insurance if citizens wasn't there. I mean, as I mentioned at the outset, Floridians do pay about three times more for coverage than the rest of the country does. But and here, I don't want to sound like a shill for citizens because God knows it's made its share of questionable and, and widely criticized moves over the years. But but Is there a big disparity between what Floridians pay with citizens and what they'd be paying if they were subject to just the free market rate on this peninsula?
1: The latest analysis shows that citizens policyholders pay an average of 40 percent less than the private market. But a lot of people don't realize that your citizens policy is not the same level of coverage is private market for example it doesn't include the liability limits that a private policy does mm-hmm. so it's not really apples to apples so you're not getting quite the same level of coverage with citizens as you go to the private policy but you're getting the essential coverages meaning windstorm hurricane season coverage. Okay,
0: Well, we have a call here from Dale in Ramrod Key, obviously a place that's got hurricanes on its minds. Uh, doesn't seem to agree <laughs> with this new uh, policy moved by citizens. Dale, welcome to the South Florida Roundup. You're on the air.
2: Hey, thank you. Um, basically, my point is um, this new law is, so Monroe County,
3: we have the strictest building codes in the state. Uh, from my understanding, we've paid in, I think, $800 million more than we've received in claims, and yet this new law is going to hurt us based on what happened in southwest Florida, um, and that, that's that's I I guess I don't have
0: a question, but that's my point. No, you you, you do bring up a a good point, Dale, about, and this is not just a question we have, you know, about how the risk gets spread around just in Florida, but there's also a lot of discussion about how we should be spreading the risk around nationwide. Uh, Can can you talk to that a little bit, Mark?
1: Well, when companies assess risk, they look at all loss activity in the state of Florida and citizens, of course, only rights in Florida. So you can't bring in other states into the equation. But they need to look at their entire risk portfolio in Florida and determine what the appropriate rates are. They can't just look at one county that insurance does not work that way. As you said a minute ago, they need to spread risk. And in this case, it would be across the entire state of Florida. So hurricane activity in one part of the state equates to higher risk for every customer right. in the state.
0: So since we just talked to Monroe County here, then let's let's take a look then at what citizens policyholders would be paying for windstorm insurance here in South Florida under the new rate hike. And, and the South Florida equation, Mark, obviously is particularly important because a whopping 75% of all citizens policies are written in just Miami-Dade and Monroe counties alone. Is that correct?
1: That is correct. So let me kind of break it down for you. Sure. Our latest analysis shows private market customers pay about $6,000 on average in Florida. Okay. That's a 40% year over year increase. Citizens customers pay on average about 40% than the private market. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's variances, individual properties, individual locations, but on average about 40%. So it's still a good rate. For citizens compared to the private market, even with rate increases potentially coming here late in the year,
0: right? Because uh, uh, right now, with this rate increase, we're going to see uh in just Miami Dade County, where about 40 percent of all citizens' policyholders live, the average premium will rise about 12 percent, right? From almost 4,600 a year to a little more than 5,100 a year.
1: That doing the math, that is correct, okay? Right, that's what we've analyzed, that's right. right.
0: Well, I'm Tim Padgett. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about Florida's hot hurricane insurance mess. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Mark, I also want to bring up with you another development that's also causing homeowners angst, and that's the new requirement for citizens and other policyholders that they carry flood insurance as part of their coverage package that's obviously a result of the enormous flood damage we've been seeing with recent storms like ian last year in southwest florida but the cost looks really exorbitant to a lot of folks should it
1: here's the situation there are thousands of citizens customers that suffered catastrophic losses from hurricane Ian and had no coverage because they did not have flood insurance right many people are under the wrong uh interpretation of what flood insurance is for in the state of Florida you need flood insurance no matter where you live it's not just in a FEMA-designated flood zone. Mm-hmm. Everybody could flood in Florida. We saw what happened in Broward County a couple of months back. It doesn't take a hurricane. It could be just a spring storm, a summer storm. You could flood, and we see flooding in South Florida quite regularly. Right.
0: Well, like when and, I when I purchased my home in 1999 here in Palmetto Bay, I was told I didn't need flood insurance because I was not on a flood plain. That, that sort of criteria just really is uh, an, uh, <laughs> an anachronistic right now.
1: That's just an old way of looking at it, really outdated, outdated approach to the need for flood insurance. Once again, especially in Florida, the most flood-prone state in the country. Okay.
0: Mark, I of course want to ask you about the Florida State Legislature and what it's done so far to bring property insurance costs down here, if anything, and to bring some sanity back to an insurance market that just looks radioactive right now, obviously. What, to your mind, are the most important measures the legislature has so far taken, and what are the most important measures it hasn't taken so far?
1: The legislature took very strong action, starting with the special session in December 2022, combined with the regular session earlier this year. And two key takeaways are Eliminating one-way attorney fees, right. which was really the generator of what we call legal system abuse, just an endless flow right. of lawsuits. And can, you explain,
0: can you explain to our listeners exactly what that term one-way you know fees for attorneys means exactly?
1: So one-way attorney fees are if a policyholder sues their insurer and they are awarded any type of monetary amount from the court, the court then determines that the insurance company needs to pay all the legal fees of the plaintiff. So the policyholder gets all their legal fees paid. If the policyholder loses their lawsuit, they don't owe anything to anybody. So -hmm. it's not a two-way, it's just a one-way, meaning the insurance company is on the hook for attorney fees. But in the case of a plaintiff losing a court filing, the court doesn't award the insurance company- Right. Fees. So that's why it's called one way. This was really a generator of this mass volume of lawsuits we've seen for so many years and very unusual compared to the rest of the country where these type of fees are not allowed. And
0: going after that practice, you feel, is probably the most important measure the legislature has taken so far.
1: That's measure one. Measure two is eliminating what's called assignment of benefits, where a policyholder signs over their claim to a third Uh, party. And we had for many years roofing replacement scams where unscrupulous roofers were going door to door in neighborhoods across South Florida and around the state and taking advantage of homeowners. Claiming there's been significant storm damage when there isn't, Mm -hmm. telling them they will take care of their roof replacement for free, sign it over to us. We will deal with your insurance company. And they talk people into this scam, which not only are these fraudulent claims, but these are generators of lawsuits because insurance Mm -hmm. companies deny these type of claims.
0: And, And what to your mind is the most important measure so far that hasn't been taken by the legislature that they need to get on?
1: Well, you know, we're not a lobbying group, so we don't lobby for legislation. But right. I'll give you a general perspective that they need to do something about the rate restrictions on citizens. And we that's been talked about for years, not anything okay. new from us. Right. The rates just are too restrictive, and it's putting mm. citizens in a deeper hole and every Florida consumer in a deeper hole. Okay. So I'm hoping mm. in the next Session that they have most likely that'll be beginning of next year, the regular session. They will look at the citizens rate picture.
0: Mark, in the minute we have left, I, I just wanted to look at the larger picture here. Also, I mean, to have a home mortgage here, you have to have windstorm coverage. But if windstorm coverage and the flood coverage and the regular homeowners coverage you have to have on top of the windstorm coverage breaks your budget. You can't own a home essentially in Florida, or if you do own your home outright, you may not be able to afford to insure it. So, Mark, how serious is the prospect that if the state doesn't get a handle on this crisis, we could see, A, an exodus of residents or people balking at coming to live in Florida, or B, more and more homeowners getting heavily damaged by storms, but they can't rebuild? In just the 30 seconds we have left, can you can you just give me your general impression of that?
1: we're already hearing from experts in the real estate market that the insurance crisis is starting to spill over to real estate transactions, meaning homes are sold. They can't be closed because the new buyer can't find insurance. So it's already becoming a problem. As you know, Florida's real estate has boomed the last few years. It's going to have a negative impact if things don't get straightened out.
0: Mark Friedlander is Communications Director for the Insurance Information Institute. Mark, thanks as always.
1: Thanks for having me. Greatly appreciate it.
0: Still to come, remembering Danny Agnew and what he meant to Miami. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. This past Monday was Juneteenth, and that makes this an especially appropriate week to remember the legacy of black Americans who've made a big difference in their communities. Sadly for the Miami community, we're now remembering one such person, Danny Agnew, who died early last Thursday in a car crash here on I-95. Danny Agnew was only 34. But since he arrived in Miami more than a decade ago, he had become an especially revered and effective local businessman and activist. The Roots Collective venture he co-founded in Liberty City has become a vital engine for black and minority entrepreneurship. The nonprofit Dream Defenders organization he helped lead is a potent social justice and community organization force. He both improved and raised the profile of a part of Miami that's too often overlooked. Were you familiar with Danny Agnew's work or his community effects here? Call us at 800 743 WLRN, 800 743 9576, or tweet us at WLRN. With us now are two people who knew Danny and his work especially well. Valencia Gunder is a leading Miami community activist in her own right and is co founder and treasurer of the nonprofit Black Collective. Emmanuel George is a historian and black arts activist in Broward County. Thank you both so much for joining us.
4: Thank you so much for having us.
0: I, of course, first want to express our sincere condolences for the loss of your friend.
4: Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Appreciate it.
0: And rather than me explaining what Danny's flagship flagship project the Roots Collective is and does, I, I thought it'd be better to hear him explain it as he did in this video from a few years back. We mm-hmm.
2: offer a three-tiered program where we have a printing company, where we create materials for people wanting to start their businesses off the ground. We also have a clothing line where we use our messaging through clothing and we also offer a platform called the Black Marketplace hosted every first and third Saturday at the Little Haiti Cultural Center. The program that we're bringing forth is called our Artspreneur program. It's a very new program where we've created our own curriculum geared towards giving youth education about their history as well as how to use Adobe Photoshop.
0: Valencia, I'm struck by that one word Danny mentions there, artspreneurship, which seems to encapsulate the fusion of business and culture that the Roots Collective promotes. Can you describe for us what Danny was getting at there and, and why that approach is so important to not only developing entrepreneurship in communities like Liberty City, where the Roots Collective is based, but to developing the sense of history and identity that improves those communities and therefore helps entrepreneurship thrive better?
4: Yeah, so um, one, I just want folks to know I miss Danny so much and um super happy that he chose Miami to be his home. And, you know, when I hear Danny use the language art Artpreneur was um, to show one our community that the thing that we know how to do, like your natural craft of creating right mm-hmm. can also be the thing that can pay your bills and help you um, expand yourself economically right Um, also teaching skills around art that also can lead to jobs and things of that nature. Also, it also helps us preserve our history here in South Florida as Black people. And I felt like he had this magical idea of merging those three things, right? Preserving history, right? Teaching people how to use their natural skill of creating to actually bring in in income, to actually bring more economic justice to our communities. Mm -hmm. And um, I feel as if Danny really, really succeeded at that.
0: Yeah. Eugene, what, to your mind, are the most important things the Roots Collective has done for Miami in the sense of what is Danny's most important legacy, I guess, in that regard?
4: Oh, it's so much, so much since that oh. interview that you played. He has grown so much. Um, So, one, um, the Black House. The Black House is more than just a place where you can go buy T-shirts. It's a hub for a lot of organizations, Black Men Build, The Village Fridge. Um, I mean, Roots Collective started growing food. They have a grow wall in the back of their community, I mean, their community center. They have a great summer camp that they have going every summer for the last three to four years. Um, and I, I feel like Danny had a lot of ideas to to be able to grow so many people, right? So many people can be invited into the space and grow. And he showed that, um, in creating the Black House, which is off of 54th Street and 7th Avenue.
0: Emmanuel, let me put the the, the same question to you. What do you, what do you feel are the most important things the Roots Collective has done and, and what you feel Danny's most important legacy is?
2: Oh, well, I definitely wanted to just say, you know, like what Valencia was saying, I mean, just missing them a lot. Still still processing, you know, everything that's been happening. It just feels like a really bad dream. I can say for me with, with Roots Collective, uh, Roots Collective basically made me who I am today. Even though I've taken my work in Broward uh, a lot more so than Miami, but Miami was where I started. And Valencia Gunder is, is another one who, you know, who's on here but, you know, Valencia Gunder, James Mungin, Danny Agnew, like these are the three that, you know, I feel as if it was really such a a big, a big key point in my life. And joining Roots Collective in 2015, you know, when it was still in its early stages, you know, we were all just from different, you know, us young black men, we were in our early to mid twenties at that time. And we were all just from different neighborhoods, different communities. And uh, we were just coming together to do so many great things. I mean, there, there was the, the the bike the bike the, the the bike rides that they were doing there was the the black marketplace and I remember even when um you know go ahead I'm sorry
0: no the the and the, the things like the free fridges
2: the free fridges and then even just the, the you know the printing that he was doing I remember when it was still quite early when we were at the Citadel in um Little Haiti in, in Miami and then now just you know just seeing to where it was going and then you know it's just like it's just, it's just so tragic because he has so much more left and and Danny was someone that you know no matter what you were doing you know no matter you know where you were from uh you know he could work with you and, and he will find ways you know like like his mind was was truly limitless
0: i'm i'm very interested also in Danny's personal story and how he made the transition to Miami i started my career as a journalist in Chicago where Danny was originally from and i was wondering valencia and emmanuel if you could tell us a bit about how Danny arrived here and why Miami turned out to be such a motivating place for him and his community vision. Valencia?
4: Sure, Sure. Um, one um, shout out to his big brother, Philip Agnew, who's one uh-huh. of the co-founders of Dream Defenders and also the, one of the co-founders of Black Man Bill. Um, he had moved down here first and um, Danny decided to move down maybe a year or two after Philip. And um, when he got here, He just got super engaged with community and bumped into folks like emmanuel myself munch and isaiah um and we just you know he just felt at home immediately here and he was able to um try a lot of his talents here to grow all of his ideas here and it just actually manifested Mm -hmm. and um he decided to stay and he always said that miami was home um you know chicago is home but Miami was his new home, for sure.
0: Emmanuel, what did he tell you about why Miami became such a, you know, a galvanizing influence for him as an activist? Emmanuel, still there?
2: Yeah, I'm still here. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, I just had my, my microphone. No. I'm sorry. No, no, no problem. Um, but yeah, so, um, you know, when we used to, to converse back in back in the day, I mean, um, uh, I know Chicago was, you know, he he did have a story there. Um, but you know, I ended up meeting Danny 2015. He was here maybe a year already in, uh, when I, when I first met him. So when we used to, when we used to converse, I mean, you know, he was really just embracing Miami and it honestly felt like he was already from here for the longest. I mean, there was literally nowhere in Miami, um, that, 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 that even been Broward, there's nowhere that that he couldn't go Mm -hmm. and like he fit right in. I mean, you know, um, you know that that was that that was um you know my my understanding. What were the you know, te- like he was already here.
0: <laughs> what, what what were the talents and personality strengths that made him so successful at this work? Would you say, Emmanuel?
2: I mean, it, I feel as if he was very relatable. Uh, that was one of the things that that really made him successful. His his empathy, uh, his level of understanding. He wasn't a judgmental person. And he was able to just be in in many different places and be able to fit right in. I mean, there was times where we would be at at a commission meeting and then we would then be in Liberty city cooling, you know, and then we would just be, you know, there was times where we were at art ex- exhibitions. I mean, you know, there was times where he would come to Broward and and he would come to the old Dillard Museum. I remember giving him a Munch a tour when they came for the Support the Real um, event. Valencia was there, too, I, um, as well, too. But it was just like, you know, even when he was coming up there, and I know he didn't really, I know uh, him and Broward had an interesting relationship, but um, he, he 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 his level of empathy allowed him, you know, yeah. I felt as if he was able, to, he was multifaceted and he was able to, You know, navigate any place.
0: Valencia, you're part of the Bahamian community here, which really were the folks who started the building of Miami back in the 19th century. How did Danny's approach dovetail with and add to the work of community development that native Miamians like yourself have been doing with efforts like the Black Collective that you co founded?
4: Yeah, um, one thing I loved about Danny, he's a great leader. He was a great teacher, a great creative, but he was also a great learner. Like He came down, he wanted to understand the culture, he wanted to understand the history, and he wanted to understand how he can support the growth of these things, right? And he always would ask so many questions. I remember him going on different tours and he would go to different museums and just try to soak up as much history as possible about Miami, about the Bahamian culture here, the Caribbean culture here, even the Haitian community here. Mm -hmm. And he just would ask questions and he would sit back and learn just as much as he would teach and create. And I feel like that's why uh, what made him so successful at being able to, like, blend completely in and being able to, um, you know, grow and help us grow as a community here in mm-hmm. Miami.
0: I'm Tim Padgett. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're discussing the legacy of Miami businessman and activist Danny Agnew. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. I also want to talk about Danny's work with the Dream Defenders, which which Emmanuel uh, mentioned earlier. That social justice and community development nonprofit emerged in response to the killing of an innocent black teenager, Trayvon Martin, by a white resident here in Florida back in 2012. Emmanuel, what did Danny bring to the Dream Defender effort that perhaps made it a more effective community organization effort here, not just in Miami but across the country?
2: So um I honestly um I honestly just to could say that I wasn't um I was always affiliated with Dream Defenders and an allied with Dream Defenders and when I met Danny in twenty fifteen, uh he was already in with, with Roots Collective, with 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 Munch and with Zabo and Francois and Omar. Um, you know, th- these were the core that I came into with Roots Collective and they were already um, you know, working with Dream Defenders already. So, um so you know to be honest um you know I've, I've my relationship and bond with Danny was you know with, with, with roots and then um then beyond that um I believe uh Valencia will have a better understanding mm-hmm. than I would because um, since she knew him during that time period as okay. well
0: uh, Valencia then let me put that question to you how how did Danny uh make the Dream Defender effort more effective, as I said, not not just as a social justice movement, but as a community organization movement?
4: I mean, the look and the feel of the Dream Defenders <laughs> is is Danny had a lot to do with um his brother being one of the co-founders and one of the executive directors for many years. Danny was in a lot of support of the Dream Defenders. I know um, what Emmanuel is gauging to is by the time we all started to working community he was like moving beyond that and building out his own organization but from what I know and understand he was like a cultural um leader within the dream defenders you know the messaging the look of it the t-shirts you know Mm -hmm. how people all the Dream Defenders and things like that. And he was that for a lot of organizations in South Florida, actually. And we're grateful for him in that. But Mm -hmm. that's what I do know about him when it came to um, the Dream Defenders, is that he was very supportive of the culture, the brand, the messaging, the communication of what people wanted to know about the Dream Defenders.
0: Valencia, finally here. Tragedies like Danny Agnew's death can have Silver linings in the sense that it brings attention to the important work someone like him was doing. Do you feel he laid a foundation that people not just in the black and minority community, but in the general community here can keep building on? And if so, what are the most important things about his efforts that you see people carrying into the future now?
4: Yeah, so one of Danny's favorite quotes is the marathon continues. And um, he got that from Hustle. Right. And um, one thing I know for a fact that Danny would want is for the work to continue. And he has laid the groundwork for us to continue the work, right? It's no reason why we should be stopping, right? We should be pouring in and taking the blueprint and moving it forward and forward. And one of the things that I think Danny taught us all is no matter where you start with a dream, it can grow as big as anything. He went from You know, making T-shirts in his room and selling it at different parks to printing T-shirts and stuff for City of Miami Gardens and for the NFL and for the Super Bowl, you know. Right. So showing people that if you like lean into your dream, you put the work in, right, you make the connections, you learn what you need to learn, you can grow as big as you want to grow. And I think that's the lesson that I'm taking from Danny directly.
0: Emmanuel, in the 30 seconds we have left, if I could just put the same question to you, how do you feel Danny's memory and legacy is going to galvanize future community entrepreneurship and activism in Miami?
2: I would definitely just say just the, the life that he lived. I mean, Danny lived his truth. Um, you know, he, he lived his life doing what he wanted to do. And that was always an inspiration for me and for many others that that knew him. And, for, and I can see that being for many others who did not know him. Um, but have gotten to know him lately from the unfortunate tragedy.
0: Well, thanks. Emmanuel George is a historian at the Black Orchid Foundation in Broward. Valencia Gunder is co-founder and treasurer of the Black Collective. Thank you both very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Still to come, the Pope's Cuba problem. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. This week, Pope Francis welcomed Cuban President Miguel Diaz-Canel for a 40-minute face-to-face meeting at the Vatican in Rome. That by itself is not, or should not be, controversial. In fact, a pope is considered the sort of world leader who has a special influence with left-wing dictatorships in Cuba as well as right-wing dictatorships. But what many people, especially here in Miami, do find controversial is the Pope's apparent unwillingness to publicly condemn or even criticize the Cuban regime's dark human rights record. John Paul II was a conservative pontiff, and yet during a visit to Chile in 1987, he openly chastised right-wing military dictator Augusto Pinochet's brutal regime. So why can't a liberal Pope like Francis bring himself to denounce communist Cuba? Turns out Cuba is still a complicated question for the Roman Catholic Church. What are your thoughts on the Pope and Cuba? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Andy Gomez is the former director of the University of Miami's Institute for Cuban and Cuban American Studies, and coincidentally, he himself is on a visit to Europe this week, led by his Catholic parish. He joins me now by phone from San Sebastian, Spain. Andy, how's the pilgrimage there going?
3: It's been wonderful, Tim. I cannot tell you what a wonderful experience it has been. All the all the special places that we have been. We just left Wars earlier this morning just arrived at San Sebastian. It's a, very special,
0: a glad, very special film. Glad to hear it. So Andy, let's start with a basic question here. For those of us like you and me who care about seeing human rights and democracy restored in Cuba, is it a good thing for a pope to sit down with Cuban leaders like Miguel Diaz Canel?
3: Well, you know it, you know, we we in South Law, as I say we Cuban Cuban Americans sometimes get too passionate about some of these issues and lose some foresight as to why these things happen. Um, The the Pope is not only the head of a Catholic church, but he's the head of a state and a very influential individual. Uh, Why Diaz-Canel now going to Cuba? Well, we can speculate, and I like to speculate with you why I think that might be the reason in this trip to the Vatican.
0: Why he wanted to see the Pope? Correct. Okay.
3: I, I, you know, uh, having watched not only the Catholic Church for so many years and being involved with the Catholic Church and some of its leaders, and at the same time, as you know very well, you and I watching for so long the issues of Cuba, we have to understand, first, the Church— the Pope is the Pope, the head of the Church, but let's remind everyone and ourselves that the Curia, or the bureaucracy of the Vatican, right. run by the Cardinals, particularly when there's a head of state, the Secretary of State, uh, is a, a, these are very sharp and powerful politicians. They have tremendous influence and outreach. Now, why is D.S. Canel in the Vatican? Well... One, I have to believe that he's carrying a message from Raúl Castro. Let's be very clear. Okay. Nothing happens in Cuba today without Raúl blessing it. All right. So I have to believe he's taking a, a, a message.
0: And what do you to, think that? What uh, do you think Pope that message from Raúl might be?
3: Well, uh, again, uh, let me speculate. Uh, number one, it can be reaching out to the church and saying. We are gonna facilitate now since COVID for the church to be able to do more humanitarian aid and need inside the island to the Cuban people to their caritas arm, I
0: mean their social service. Right. Caritas being be, yeah, they, be, being the main social social yeah, they, aid organization yeah, and for and the and Catholic Church it, there. Yeah. And they
3: have had us, you know, a very tough time getting things in. That's right. one. Mm-hmm. Two, the message can also be that Cuba is willing to arbitrate between Nicaragua and Daniel Ortega and the position that he has taken, which has been very harsh, as you know, against right. the Catholic Church and its leaders. No, he's house. he's essentially
0: throwing the Catholic Church out of Nicaragua.
3: Yeah, completely, completely. So and, and, he's got, and he's got and he's got a bishop
0: in jail there.
3: Absolutely. So that can be one thing that Cuba wants to play play the role of the mediator, and I will. One, the Vatican, be very careful with that. Be yeah. very, very careful with that. You do not want symbolically, otherwise, empower Cuba in that particular role.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: That's one. Right. But, now,
1: mm-hmm.
0: go ahead.
3: What, what, what would the Church demand from from the and the Cuban government? Well, you know, to say human rights, human rights, human rights, human rights. we can say human rights, but we got to get past that. The violations of human rights, we know it. It's been there. It's been recorded. They're
0: atrocious. Right, and 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 the Andy, just let me to, to Andy to be fair to the Pope. I should also mention that earlier this yeah. year, uh, he did strongly ask uh, the, the the Cuban regime to release those thousand political prisoners who are serving twenty and year sentences right now. right now. Yeah, and for 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 simply for simply that, anti government protests. Yeah,
3: absolutely. And that's where I'm going right now. Okay. I think the Church probably asked the Escanal to release the political prisoners. However, there's a difference here. The first time that the Church did this, and you remember, were the 75 very influential so-called dissidents in Cuba. And the Church played a major role in releasing those, and Cuba agreed as long as they left Cuba.
0: Those were the associates of of dissident leader Oswaldo Payá. Exacto. Yeah.
3: In this particular case, we're talking about kids that have been, have been thrown in jails. They're not necessarily dissident leaders, but these yeah. were people that were protesting two years ago, two Julys ago, right. asking for freedom and then a better life.
0: Right, And as you point out, some so of them 16-, 17-year-old kids.
3: Absolutely, but they're in jail. Now, Is Cuba going to be willing to release some or all and keep them on the island, or throw them out. I have to tell you, I met a number of them in Cuba that that participated in the protests were, were were arrested, released with the condition of of leaving Cuba. Right. So you and I know, and your listeners know that the main thing for Cuba and the Cuban government is keeping political control, right, and squashing any protest. Mm-hmm. The other thing I'm a little concerned, Tim is that Cuba might find, I'm speculating, Cuba might find themselves now maybe in a stronger position because of the negotiations and agreements that they have reached with the Russians and the Chinese to come into Cuba. All
0: right. I'm Tim Paget. I, I have uh, Andy sorry, I have to do a little FCC thing here. I'm Tim Paget. This is the oh. South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're take, we're talking about the complicated relationship between the Pope and Cuba. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576 or tweet us at WLRN. So Andy, continue with that 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 important point I think you're making about Cuba sort of finding uh, uh, you know political refuge right now in, in its relationship with Russia and China
3: i mean that that somehow strengthens the political control of the cuban government if you will by having russia now come in and the chinese come in uh that doesn't necessarily mean that the conditions of the cubans on the island the people are going to improve within the next months
1: right we
3: have to wait and see but But, politically mm -hmm. politically it it strengthens cuba a little bit and that's something the Washington is going to have to monitor very closely.
0: Right. Well, since you brought up the issue of Cuba's leverage and perhaps the Catholic Church's lack of it in, in this relationship. I, I want to bring in some context here. You know, At the outset, for yeah. example, I mentioned the example of Pope John Paul II really giving it to Chilean dictator Augusto Pinochet back yeah. in 1987. But John Paul had leverage in Chile because it was and still is an immensely devout Catholic country with an immensely robust and influential Catholic Church, at least back then. People here in Miami see devout Catholics like yourself, and they think, well, Cuba must be the same way. But that's not the case, is it?
3: No, it's not. No, it's not. And, and we have to keep in mind, even though the Catholic Church was strong in Cuba, but the Catholic Church was always in Cuba influenced by Santeria, if you will.
0: hmm
3: You know? So th- there was a crisscross of both Catholicism and Santeria within, in itself, you know.
0: But even before uh, the even before the Cuban Revolution, Cuba was not as Catholic as some people might think. In large part because the priests, uh, the Catholic priests, were sort of viewed with mistrust because back in the nineteenth century, the Church had been sort of aligned with Spain. When Cuba was trying to win its independence, is is, is that a you're correct assessment?
3: You're absolutely, you're absolutely correct, and that has that that was always an issue back then. And, uh, and then you know the churches. I mean, you would see in, in, in regular masses. I was told that uh, you would see more women than you, than you would see men. Uh, but that's that's very all, some traditional, sometimes in all of Latin America. But the church, the Catholic Church, has been trying, and, and as you know, I've been, I went to Cuba for both. Pope Benedict's visit and Pope Francis's visit with Archbishop Winsky and a number of priests, mm-hmm. and Cardinal Sean O'Malley from Boston. And the Catholic Church has been trying—I'm not going to use the word negotiation, but has been trying to have conversations with the Cuban government to allow them to open up schools. As I've told the Church, and I think you would agree with me, I don't think that will happen because that would be totally contradictory to their own ideology that they have been teaching in schools, which I no longer believe that the majority of the Cuban people on the island believe in that ideology anymore.
0: Yeah. But given that relatively weak position of the Catholic Church in Cuba, can we then excuse... The Pope Francis, or any pope, for treating the Cuban regime with kid gloves, as, as his critics would say? Or does playing softball with the regime just make the church's no, hand even these, weaker I, on the island?
3: What I have learned from the Catholic Church, they're very meticulous. They're very slow. Jesus, more slow than universities are, by the way. <laughs> right. they're, they're very slow and me- very methodic in their approach. I mean, I, have, I mean, that that courier inside the Vatican, which I've gotten to know over the years, some, I mean, they, you have some of the top diplomats, I would say, besides being cardinals and monsignors and bishops, you have some very talented people. So they're always trying to measure what steps to take next. Given the fact that the statement that came out of the Vatican in Cuba, I would say, I don't know if you would agree with me, It's very ambiguous. It really doesn't say much.
0: Right. No, I I would agree with you,
3: yeah. let me to believe that whatever conversations they had, it's not over. It was the beginning to something that they want to get to, Mm -hmm. whether it's Nicaragua, whether it's the Cuban political problem, political prisoners problem, whether it's the church being Mm -hmm. allowed to come in and, and deal and help with some of the social needs. So I I believe that this is not over. I believe that we're going to see sometime in the near future uh, further steps, both by the Vatican and the Cuban uh, government.
0: We'll have to leave it there, Andy. I really appreciate you talking to us from Europe. Andy Gomez is the former director of the Institute for Cuban and Cuban American Studies at the University of Miami. Andy, enjoy your time over there.
3: Look forward to getting back. Talk to you, too. Take care. Take care.
0: Finally on the roundup, okay, all you millennials, here comes some music from the years you were born. Rhythm is Gonna Get You you was a top five hit for Gloria Stefan and the Miami Sound Machine in 1987, the year I got married. The song was also co-written by Gloria Estefan, along with Enrique Garcia. It's one of the tunes that's made Estefan the second best-selling Latin female recording artist ever. And it's one that this week helped make her the first Hispanic woman to be named to the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Estefan, of course, is an icon of Miami's Cuban community, and she's also composed songs in Spanish, like this gem from 1993, Mi Tierra. Felicidades, Gloria. That will do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Amy Sanchez with help from Polly Landis and Natu Tue. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Mateo Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news. The Vice President of Radio and Show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Maers. Richard Ives answers the phones. I'm Tim Paget. Have a great weekend and thanks for listening. Gracias, Messi, Obrigado.